Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Who do we bring on but the most serious of serious dudes from ESPN.com? We affectionately reference him as Duraco. Mike Duraco joins us who covers the Jacksonville Jaguars. Hello, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Fantastic. Getting serious around here. Getting serious for a <laughs> a a lengthy a lengthy season that is getting ready to get underway around here. It is going to be more about the quarterback and that evolution than it is about going after any sort of thoughts of contention within the division. That's how you start the season here. Well, look, I've been there. I've covered teams like that. Unfortunately, it seems like nine or ten times. Uh, where, uh, you know, but but at least you know it going in. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, you find out, you'll know by the end of the season whether Anthony Richardson's the guy. And, and you know, and if he is, which, you know, uh, clearly the Colts believe he is, then it, it might not be too long before – they're back competing for division titles and, and AFC championships. Well, I mean, most people would just say, hey, it is the you know the AFC South, but obviously the team you cover uh, should be uh, at the top of that particular list. I did want to ask you this, Mike. How have you – how do you know they prep for Anthony Richardson in this case? What, what's the concentration defensively going into this week one matchup where clearly NFL-wise there's no tape of it? Yeah, you know, I asked uh, Foyer Lewican that the other day, and um, I was like, yeah, do you watch any Florida tape? And I guess he kind of grimaced. I didn't – I just assumed that that's the, what they would watch. Did, did he grimace because he felt it was not a good question? Or <laughs> why, why well, was there a grimace? Always, there's always that. I, I, <laughs> or maybe he didn't want people to realize that ah. they were studying Florida tape, which, I, I mean – I mean, I would thought that would have been a natural, but they were studying, um, yeah, what Richardson did at Florida, the preseason stuff, which, you know, you always kind of take that with a grain of salt. And they looked at um, some of the, the Eagles stuff with, with Steichen and, and to kind of get an idea about what they were going to potentially see there. Now, you know, it, it, there's no lie. It makes it easier to prepare for this team without uh, Jonathan Taylor, um, you know, as a, as a factor here. But, uh, yeah, they, they looked at, you know, pretty much anything they could find on Richardson. And, and, you know, there's not a lot, to be honest with you. Only started last year, didn't complete 60% of his passes. And, and I think what we saw in the preseason is what um, they'll see on the tape is that there's two or three throws a game where you go, what the, why, why, why? Uh, and then there's also two or three throws a game that you go, there are not a lot of guys that can make that throw. Um, and then yeah. there's some stuff in between. Um, but that's kind of what you expect out of a raw rookie. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to this game. I really am, am looking forward to seeing him running around out there. And, and that's the thing I think that scares the Jags a little bit is, you know, him getting loose. Uh, and then, you know, because he can break a game open with his legs. And that's the one thing you don't want to let him do if you're the Jags. You would much prefer him be in that pocket and throw it 30 times than – you know, be running around out there. It's Mike Duraco of ESPN.com covers the Jaguars on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I'm going to double back to dealing with Richardson and this, this Colts offense with you in just a second. Uh, but I did hear 
I heard Gus Bradley talk a little bit earlier today, among the other things, um, as, as far as weapons are concerned, the, uh, the Jaguars that he has concerns about. You know, I, I mentioned the unknown. There's a complete unknown um, as far as NFL is concerned for Anthony Richardson. But there's, you know, after a one-year missed, an unknown regarding how Calvin Ridley is going to fit into this Jaguars offense with the already level of talent they have. How does he fit? And how much of a focus might he be in game number one and year number one in Jacksonville? Uh, pretty heavy. I, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm expecting them to feed him the ball early to kind of get him moving, get him going. Um, and, and Ridley's sort of a guy that, um, there have been times watching him in his career where at the end of the game, you don't realize that he had as many catches for as many yards as he did. Cause he's just so productive, but I'll say this in the final preseason game. Um, you know, their thing was getting the ball out of, Trevor Lawrence's hands quickly. That's what they wanted to work on. That's what they wanted to do. Uh, he did that a lot last year, but obviously they've had some issues on the offensive line, so they really wanted to work on that too. Well, the one time he held the ball, he got a blitz in his face, and he took an absolute smack in the mouth, but he put this ball out there for Calvin Ridley to go get, and Ridley went and got it. I'm sure we've all seen the the replay where he gets both feet down on the sideline there. Um, that's the trust level that Trevor Lawrence has developed with Calvin Ridley in just this training camp. So I expect him to be, you know, the number one guy. And, you know, you, you obviously expect teams to try and take him away. Uh, and I would assume the Colts would do the same thing and say, we got to make Calvin Ridley our number one priority but that's going to be too hard to really kind of stop the offense because they got so many other guys there. But Ridley was their most impressive offensive guy in camp by far, so I'm expecting him to have a big year. He, if he doesn't catch a thousand yards worth of passes, I, I will be stunned this year. And Mike Duraco joins us. The other thing I wanted to ask you about—I I can't remember if we've talked about this in the off season or not—but it is it is that of missing Cam Robinson to start the season, first four games, and you know this can be a little longer form answer if you want, Mike, too, talking about the games coming up after the Colts. But uh, how does that affect? this team's offense starting out in week number one when everything is new and it seems like I mean NFL games in general are played pretty tight pretty close but you would have to think to start the season you know you got teams that you're trying to to find their way a little bit and this would seem to be something really difficult for the Jags to deal with am I off base uh, yes and no. Um, it is difficult, but Walker Little has had a great camp. Um, if you said who was probably their best offensive lineman in camp, it would be Walker Little, who's going to start at left tackle for Cam Robinson. However, he was held out of the final preseason game with a groin injury, um, so they're really being careful with him. And that's an, that could be a massive issue because – um, he's already their number two left tackle. And if he's unable to play, they're probably going to end up playing, what, Blake Hance, um, which would be just an awful, awful problem for the Jags to deal with. Um, or, or maybe even Cole Van Lannan. Um, and, and that's not any better. So um, Robinson's loss or suspension, it could be an issue if Walker's not healthy. If he is healthy, then I'm not sure it's going to be too much of a, a of a problem for the Jags to overcome. However, um, you know the thing about Cam Robinson was he didn't play great in in the third preseason or the second preseason game. Played a little better in the last preseason game. So uh, the plan would be when he comes back, 
is to move him back to left tackle and probably move Walker Little into left guard. So the second time the Colts see him, uh, that might be what they see is Walker Little in inside at left guard and, and Cam Robinson at left tackle. But, you know, the first four weeks, um, it's, uh, you know, the Colts, it's the Chiefs, it's the Texans, and then it's the Falcons. So it's not exactly, um, you know, a dominant row of pass rushers that they're going to have to face there. So that they catch a break from that standpoint. Mike, you look at this offense, and we were talking about Calvin Ridley in year number one there, but in terms of, of this offense on paper compared to – the offensive prowess on the roster of the past in which you've covered this team, where would this rank again on paper to start the season with the past? Uh, well, again, I, I'm, I started covering the team in 2013, so I don't have this sure. is my 11th year. It's by far the best. It's they have answers for, or they have playmakers at every spot. Um, you know, they've got the guy in the slot with with Christian Kirk and Ridley on the outside, Zay Jones, uh, Evan Ingram. Obviously, is a problem. He's essentially another receiver that they're throwing out there at tight end. And now the addition of Tank Bigsby, um, who was probably the second most impressive player in offensive player in camp, um, you know, to the running back room with Travis Etienne, thousand yard rusher last year. Uh, they've got answers everywhere. They're going to be a team that should be up there among the top three in the league in terms of scoring points. Um, that's the expectation. Um, you know, Doug Peterson talked openly about adding, you know, seven points a game to the offensive output this year, and that shouldn't be a problem. That you know, that gets them up around 28, 29 points, which is essentially what the Chiefs averaged last year. Um, so I haven't seen an offense. To be honest with you, I hadn't seen an offense in the ten years I covered the team as good as last year's. Um, and now you add Ridley to that. This is by far the best. And in terms of on paper and options at different positions, it might be one of the best in franchise history. There are probably, you know, when they had Jimmy Smith and Keenan McCardell at receiver, those two are probably better than the Jags' top two um, of Ridley and Kirk yeah. or Ridley and whoever else. But, you know, they didn't have the depth that this group had. They didn't have the kind of pass-catching tight end that Evan Ingram uh, is. You know, his season last year, the best receiving season by a tight end in franchise history. So, um, you know, they've got more depth in term and more playmakers at more positions here. So arguably heading into the season, it has the potential to be the best in franchise history. Where's the expectation fan base wise at right now to start the season down in Jacksonville? Oh, gosh, they're expecting they're expecting <laughs> to be in the Super Bowl because, um, you know, that's what happens. You know, you lose a playoff game and then the next year you automatically are in the Super Bowl. Yeah. That's how the NFL works. Um, but I, I'll be honest, I, I think people around here are ex- expecting this offense to be one of the best in the league. I think realistic expectations, that's a legitimate one. Um, you know, and here's the thing. They've got the Bengals at home. They've got the Ravens at home. They have the 49ers at home. They have the uh, Bills in London. Um, and I know that that's a Bills home game, but the Jags have been in London for, you yeah. know, this will be the 11th time. Um, so they've got these games where they have the chance to sort of make their hay against the best teams in the AFC. Now, if they can get, say, the Bengals and, you know, the Chiefs game or the Bengals and the Ravens game, you know, then all of a sudden, they, you know, you're, you're playing against the elite teams in the AFC and you're winning. And now all of a sudden you've got a chance to, you know, that's a tie break in the playoffs. And as we all know, home field advantage in the playoffs is huge. So um, the expectation is definitely, uh, you know, win the AFC South, 
and you know win a playoff game or two. They 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 legitimately should be playing in the divisional round, and and I don't think that's out of the question. So Mike Duraco of ESPN.com covers the Jaguars. Of course, week one has Jacksonville up here at Lucas Oil Stadium against the Colts coming up at 1 o'clock on Sunday. We'll help get you there. I'll explain a little bit later on. But if there is a, a position of need or a question mark that you have to start this season for the Jags, where do you begin? Pass rush. It's not even – I mean, to me, that's this team's biggest weakness. You know, Josh Allen is a seven, eight sack guy. Uh, he's not an elite pass rusher. Uh, the Jags took him to be one, and he's not. He's a very, very good football player. He's among the lead leaders in pressures last year, so he does get close, but he doesn't finish. Trayvon Walker, they took number one uh, overall last year. had three and a half sacks. He's a really good defender against the run, and he's a disruptor, uh, especially when he plays you know, with his hand in the dirt and they move him inside a little bit. But that's not what you're expecting when you take a guy number one overall. That That's the 14, 15 sack guy that's the all-pro, pro bowler, and is in the conversation for defensive MVP. But that's not who he is. Uh, and, and after that, they don't really have anybody else that uh, of note to even mention. I mean, Caleb on Chase on the number 20 pick, I think, in 2020, um, has three sacks in three years. Uh, it, it's just they, they have no – pass rush on the edge that's and of anything of significance. So they're going to have to get um, – they're going to have to blitz. They're going to have to do some creative things to try and get guys in the quarterback's face. Uh, but the last image of this team from the last season was in that Kansas City playoff game, Patrick Mahomes has the foot injury, and he's hobbling around and limping around out there, and the Jags couldn't get him down. And that's going to be the thing, I think, that keeps them from winning the Super Bowl, maybe even keeps them from getting to a Super Bowl, is the lack of pass rush. All right, getting back to Anthony Richardson, um, how do you think they deal? Is there just going to be a lot of going at him, a lot of blitzing at him, a lot of you know making him make those decisions that clearly he has never made before on this particular level? Anybody going to be spying on him? Because it's considered he's probably going to tuck and run a great deal coming up on Sunday. Where do we start defensively and how they approach the rookie quarterback? Yeah, you know, I think if they're going to put a spy on him, it probably would be Devin Lloyd. Um, but again, you know, Anthony Richardson is a phenomenal athlete, and I don't know if it's going to matter who they put a spot. If that kid gets the corner, goodbye. Uh, that's a problem for them. And I think, you know, they'll blitz him a little bit, but I think you want to play a lot of zone and let this kid, you know, try and figure it out as things goes. Disguise some looks. Fake some blitzes, drop in the coverage. Some zone blitzes maybe here and there, but drop different guys in the coverage. Do everything you can to confuse the kid because the last thing you want to do is play a lot of man and send a couple extra guys and he gets free and your defensive backs and safeties are running down the field with their backs to Anthony Richardson and has no they have no idea that he's already 15, 20 yards down the field. Because the one thing you can't let the him do is beat you with his feet in this game. If he makes all the throws and he throws for 250 yards and three touchdowns and he beats you that way, you know, you don't like it if you're the Jags, but you can live with it. But you do not want to let him beat you with his feet. So I think they'll keep a lot of stuff in front of him, play a lot of zone. And, um, you know, they'll blitz him occasionally for sure. But I would be really surprised if they go at him all the time. Hey, Mike, I, I don't know if we've talked about this, but obviously everybody that comes on this show, we end up 
talking football and, and talking about this. Are you surprised uh, to the degree that this whole Jonathan Taylor Colt situation has turned into the soap opera that's seemingly never ending? Uh, not really, because I had the one here with Jalen Ramsey yeah, uh, you did. several yeah. years ago. Um, it is not, I don't feel like, as acrimonious as the Jalen Ramsey one was because, you know, Jalen Ramsey wasn't screaming or Jonathan Taylor wasn't screaming it you know, the head coach on the sideline and and the head coach didn't have to be separated from Jalen Ramsey like we had uh, happen here. Was it 2019, I guess it was, with uh, Doug Marone and Jalen Ramsey. He was so, tweeting in ownership uh, too back then too, right? Yes. Yeah, it was It was a mess. It yeah. was a mess. Um, it's not good in Indy for sure, um, without question. And, and Ursay is not helping it um, with some of the things that he said, but – you know, I'm not surprised by really much in the NFL yeah. and uh, anymore. And, you know, as a guy who owns Jonathan Taylor on a dynasty fantasy league, <laughs> not very happy right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't – what's the feeling up there? Is it going to get solved or is he I, just going to – It has to be solved play? one way or the other. Uh, I mean, they, they bought themselves – and I still think this is all ridiculous, but bought themselves, what, four weeks of time to, to figure it out and I guess see if if you know somebody smooths it out. I, I just – this has been the case in point, Mike, for the Colts. And, and really, it starts at the top. Uh, it starts with Jim Irsay. Now, he's the one that is going to be unwilling to move off of this final year of the contract and show me and then we'll pay you. Um, I, listen, do I think that Chris Ballard probably agrees a little, but remember Chris Ballard's the one that just three years ago traded up in the second round to get Jonathan Taylor. And this was one of his core beliefs. So it, it starts at the top with Jim and the fact in a season, Mike, where we know a couple of things here. We know that Jonathan Taylor really needs to have a good one. If he wants to get paid the, in the dynamic way in which he, he wants to get paid. And we also know that the Colts with a rookie quarterback really need his presence back there, a home a home run when healthy hitting threat. And neither one can find one another in this kind of messed up situation is just absolutely ridiculous to me. And it will never not be. I don't care what if if Taylor is asking for you know the moon and the stars, then so be it. You know if one side is just so incredibly unreasonable, I'll get it. But the fact that you could not come together in a a year with a rookie quarterback that is so essential that you have some good things occasionally happen is still ridiculous to me, and just won't stop being. Yeah, and and the rookie head coach too. Oh, by the way. The oh yeah, I mean yeah, it's just it's, yeah, <laughs> it's just it's so necessary. And Mike, it's not like it is the rest of the NFL. I mean, I can understand why you know the Giants dealt with Barkley the way they did, and what happened with you know Cook in, in Minnesota with Jacobs and the Raiders. I, I get all that, but here it's it's different considering the situation and circumstances, and to find zero common ground on this, I just think it's ridiculous. Well, you got two guys who probably got their feelings hurt and two yes. very stubborn guys, and that is not ever a good combination. No, no. <laughs> it hasn't been. It's just like one soap opera after the other. So I, I guess coming up in, in four weeks, we'll, I, I guess, have an end to it. I, I just I, I hate saying it, and but I do, and I have for a long time. I, I, I think that if he got the money that he wanted, that he found reasonable, he'd be playing tomorrow. Seriously, or if he could, if he wasn't on PEP, I think he'd be playing tomorrow. 
works very well. Yeah. I, I just I don't I'm not a believer like Chris Jones just says, hey, man, pay me or you guys can, you know, blank off or whatever. I, I think he's just doing that in a different way. But yeah. getting paid, and, he's getting paid. So, yeah. And, and if you're Chris Jones, if you're the Chiefs, you need Chris Jones. Yes, you do. Uh, you know, you need I would argue the Chiefs need Chris Jones more than the, the Colts need Jonathan Taylor. Um, but if they both need their, those guys really, really badly to have really any chance what, of success. What, what's funny about it, too, you saw you know, Travis Kelsey with the, the hyperextended knee. He's limited yeah. in practice and may not play on the opener on Thursday night. Where would you – is it Chris Jones that is more valuable or Travis Kelsey that is more valuable to this overall team? I mean, there are a lot of arguments and debates to be had there, but who might be more valuable to their particular units on this Chiefs team? Which one? Well, probably, I would probably go with Kelsey only because he's the proven guy. He's the guy that Pat Mahomes looks at literally every single play. He's the safety valve. He's the offense runs through um, Travis Kelsey with, with, with the Chiefs. It's a lot like when Gronk was rolling with the Patriots. You, know, you can say what you want about you know Edelman and guys like Wes Welker and what have you. That offense ran through Gronk. And I think that offense in Kansas City runs through Travis Kelsey. And uh, I do think Pat Mahomes is a good enough quarterback to make up for some of that, for sure. But, you know, boy, when you when you don't really have a pass rusher and, and you've got the one guy who is, you know, he's not yeah. Aaron Donald, but he's getting really, really, really good. He can wreck a game. And, and defensive guys that can wreck a game are really, really valuable. It's like Michael Parsons. Yeah. He can wreck yeah. a game. And, you know, it's a huge loss when you don't have that guy. Yeah, and Mike, that's what I thought about with Chris Jones in terms of something that they can't recreate. Nobody can step up and single-handedly recreate him defensively, but you know, Mahomes can help recreate. Not a Travis Kelsey-like. I mean, I'm not suggesting he's not good. He is. But I think you'd find it easier for Mahomes to find other options in a pinch than what the Chiefs can defensively in a pinch for Jones. So, instead. Well, as someone who also owns Travis Kelsey on that same fantasy Man, team, you're a mess right now, brother. <laughs> I really am a mess. I really, really just – I don't even know what I'm going to do in week one here. I'm just – I'm killing it. it would, the only thing that would make it worse is if I had like Bosa or, or yeah. Chris Jones as well. All right, so before I let you go, Mike, who do you got outside of obviously Jacksonville? Who's, who's going to be with Jacksonville as expected to challenge for the AFC South this year? I think it's probably going to be Tennessee. I really like Mike Vrabel. Um, I love him as a coach. His teams are always tough and physical, and they give the Jags trouble because they punch him in the mouth. And, and, you know, this has just not been a team that's handled that very well. And let's not forget, the Jags almost lost that game at home in, in week 18 to the the Titans and Josh Dobbs. If that's ruled an incomplete pass instead of a fumble, then I don't think the Jags get come back and score, and it's the Titans in the playoffs and not the Jags. And they had to lose, what, five straight games to get to that yeah. point? You know, so I, I don't think the Titans are as dead in the water as a lot of people think, but I still think the Jags win this by two or three games. All right, Mike DiRocco of ESPN.com. There you go for all your Jaguars intel right there via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Well, safe travels up here. We'll look for you in the press box. I don't know what's going to be served. Are you excited? Does does the uh, Lucas Oil Stadium press box food excite you at all, Mike? Well, they bring out pie at halftime, and and I'm always good for pie. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, you. we all are good for pie, my brother. All of us. All right, man. I'll see you up here on Sunday. I appreciate you. All right. Thanks. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. The Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline from Pro Football Focus, our friend Brad Spielberger, every Tuesday joins us right here. Do you keep track of, of college football, too, as much as you do the NFL? I would say I personally keep a little bit less track, definitely the SEC, and then I'll watch all the big games. But we have people that are diving into all the college football data, and that is not myself. What did you think about the, the opener? And certainly the story, the, the biggest story was that of Deion Sanders and what Colorado did uh, down at TCU over the weekend, too. What do you start with that? What do you see? Is this something you believe is going to be sustainable? You think with Colorado this year, was that going to be kind of like a, I think I, maybe kind of like a, a Tuffy Rhodes type of debut for the Cubs, and then that's about it? It was truly remarkable. Watched every snap, thought it was one of the most incredible performances I've seen in a very long time, obviously from his kid Shadour, a quarterback with over 500 yards, and then we tracked Travis Hunter, played about 150 total snaps at both corner, uh, one of the highest-graded corners in college football, and had 11 catches for 119 yards. So it was remarkable, but the thing I think will be interesting is, and I'm not really sure why TCU didn't leverage this, was they are still light in the trenches. They're small on the offensive line. They're pretty small and inexperienced on the defensive line. I think we will see right away you get Nebraska coming into town with Matt Rule, they're going to maybe see if they can expose that, run the football a ton, you know, yeah. do things to, to expose them up front. And we'll say it's kind of crazy from a betting angle. Nebraska was minus nine and a half coming into the week, and now Colorado is minus three. So we've seen a spread <laughs> change of about 13 points, uh, which, uh, which I've never seen, I think, in my life. Yeah, you, you, TCU didn't really have much change or adjustment in their game. They just went out there for that track meet and got out track meeted, it felt. Exactly, and, and Colorado's going to play tempo, and the fact yeah. they've been practicing tempo in the altitude the entire offseason, that's going to be a problem, but, but I do think bully ball maybe could work. Uh, Brad Spielberger with us. I, it's it's funny too. You you look at you know Colorado situation with with Deion Sanders and what they do offensively. And you mentioned Travis Hunter and playing both sides of the football. And I know that's still a long way to go here. But where does his best? Is he offensively at the best? Is he defensively at his best? As far as the NFL, if it takes yeah. shape. Yeah, it's really hard to. Well, I think it will take shape. Really, I know it's early, but I, it really is hard to tell. I mean, I think. He's known as more of a pure corner. I think you saw him kind of testing the TCU quarterback, playing out of position, playing you know the wrong leverage on certain snaps. But you started to wonder, is he doing that on purpose to goad certain throws? Obviously had a beautiful interception in that game. We had him with three other pass breakups on five total targets. So, you know, impacting four or five targets thrown his way. I lean towards corner still, but, I mean, he was creating separation at will, down the field, over the middle. It's up to him, honestly. <laughs> All right, so we're starting here running back by committee, Brad, here in Indy, while Jonathan Taylor sits on the the pup list. Tell me this, and we know he has to sit out the first four games of the season now, and then the drama will recalibrate once we get to that point in time. I want to see two different sides. I want to start with what do you think is the best-case scenario that can happen for the Colts side of things? you know, once we get to the end of this PUP situation? 
Yeah, you know, I think the best case scenario is they're able to mend fences. They work through the situation. They let him get healthy, recover all those things. And then they don't shy away from reengaging in conversations. You know, a lot of teams do shut down talks during the season. They kind of have a rule that they don't negotiate midseason. But there's precedent with this front office. Uh, Grover Stewart a couple of years ago got a deal, I want to say, in November or December. So that does not appear to be a rule they have. I, I say just keep an open line of communication. Try to work through things. If he's playing very, very well, you know, why shy away from continuing talks? But it does sound like there's obviously been, you know, some back and forth there. that The relationship is a bit frayed. But we hear that all the time. Debo Samuel asked for a trade last year. He obviously was fine. I say that the best-case scenario is just don't give up on it, be patient, and kind of let things come to you. Yeah, it's funny. Last week, uh, Chris Ballard met with the media. And it, it's funny, uh, a week and a half prior, Jim Irsay said during the second preseason game, third quarter broadcast booth, he had mentioned that Chris Ballard was going to have to calm the waters. Uh, which is, I, I, I felt that's exactly what Chris Ballard tried to do in the opener of that presser last week. I Honestly, in terms of what I think is of value to them and to what they want to do to get Jonathan Taylor, I think a lot of what we heard last week was incredibly... PC, very political from Chris Ballard. I don't know how meaningful it was about being able to or wanting to or, you know, meeting and hashing things out. It kind of seems like to me that maybe things are are put away, etched in stone. Would you agree? Yeah, potentially. You know, I do think, and I'll tell you, if you talk to any agent across the NFL, they will tell you Chris Ballard is one of the guys they like working across the table with as much as any other GM. You know, not necessarily going to give you a great deal, but is is respectable, you know, goes back and forth, has a dialogue. One comment I did find pretty pretty interesting from him, though, when someone said, you know, kind of, why are you not getting him a deal? And he said, look, we won four games last year. It's kind of a dangerous thing to say. I mean, teams pay very good players that are on awful rosters all the time. You know, it happens every single offseason. So I find that a little bit interesting and, and maybe a comment that could be taken, you yeah. know, ruffling the feathers a little bit. But but anyway, I, I think if there's any GM that can, that can work through it, again, look at Baltimore with Lamar Jackson, like, these entrenched, established GMs that have good rapport, I think they can find a way. Hey, I, I said that last week. I said the same thing in in terms of, uh, listen, did I know what he, he meant? Absolutely. But how many different ways could you take it? And as I've mentioned all the time, I mean, you're wide open for interpretation. And I thought you could take that as a shot. And it's funny, we talked about this on Friday's show I mean, Jonathan Taylor, even when injured, would rank about 150 on the problems this team had a year ago with four wins. I mean, it's 100%. not even close. It's ridiculous. 100%, right. And that's the thing. You can't really – I mean, again, like you said, I, I cannot agree more. I know exactly what he was saying. So you have a crappy whole- season and you get rid of your good players too, I guess, is what he's saying, right? Right, right. And, that, and that's kind of the slippery slope there. Yeah, it's no doubt. Brad Spielberger of PFF joins us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. All right, what are you thinking about in terms of probably not so much the Colts and Jacksonville week number one? What's you eyeballing for the start of this season right now, Brad? I mean, things are getting real interesting now in this Kansas City matchup. It, it looks like we're not going to have Chris Jones. And now, as of a couple hours ago, the hyperextended knee for Travis Kelsey. Uh, I think the biggest thing when we talk about the Chiefs, for whatever reason, the tight end position still, even going back to Tom Brady days when he was winning Super Bowls, everyone says, oh, well, he never had a good receiver. And, oh, it doesn't matter who the wide receivers are for Patrick Mahomes. To a degree, I I get the argument. But we're just going to ignore the fact he has a a tight end that has missed three games his entire career, 
who has rattled off more 1,000-yard receiving seasons than I think any tight end except for Tony Gonzalez in NFL history. Like, that guy matters a lot. So, uh, you know, that game is fascinating, obviously, right around the corner on Thursday. I guess one other, you know, kind of random thought. There's a couple of very interesting games. One that piques my interest is another one where we might not have a key player. Is San Francisco traveling to Pittsburgh? They're a small favorite right now. But if Nick Bosa doesn't play, I think things get very interesting in Pittsburgh week one. All right, you you brought up Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes at the top of the list. Um, And we know about the Chris Jones. I mean, he just basically said, I'm holding it out. I don't get paid enough, whatever. But without Chris Jones already, and possibly on Thursday, without Travis Kelsey, listen, I know this may be a dumb question. I just think that a lot rides on the defensive presence of Jones, too. How would you rank, if Kelsey's unavailable, the losses of each on both sides of the football Thursday night for the Chiefs? You know, I think as phenomenal as Travis Kelsey is, you still have a phenomenal offensive line. You have the best quarterback in the NFL and yeah. maybe the best you know, play caller in Andy Reid. My thing with Chris Jones is, you know, there's young talent that I think is has potential on this defensive line. You know, you had the back-to-back first-round picks and George Karloftis and Felix Anudike Uzama. You know, I, I do like some pieces in the secondary with Trent McDuffie, their first-rounder from last year, and Legereus Sneed's a good player in the slot. But, but those are all guys. They're, they're not difference-making, force-multiplier-type players like a Chris Jones, who I think you'd argue was the most important player to any defense in the NFL last year, and then underrated as well. Charles Amenahu, their free agent acquisition, suspended for the first six weeks. So can they generate a pass rush against a very good offensive line in Detroit? If they can't, as much as I do like the secondary, you know, it's not a bunch of lockdown Darrell Revis is back there. I think we could see 70 points in this game. Well, you, you mentioned the 49ers, too, and without a Bosa, that's one thing. Um, when you make a mistake, as they did in drafting and trading for and then drafting you know, Trey Lance and then giving up on that, as they did, Brad, uh, we know what helped get them to the AFC title game, and in large part, that was defensively. So you, you can't afford to lose any ground whatsoever when I, I know you trust Brock Purdy and the quarterback situation, but you don't want to lose any ground defensively because that was a large portion of what got you to where you are, where you were a, a season ago, and also what could hold you up in terms of uh, what could be a very uncertain path moving forward offensively with Brock Purdy. It's just a a thought. You have to have that balance there, and one essential dude like that really does break up that balance. 100%. Another guy where, look, I mean, the defensive line, they have Javon Hargrave, who's a stud. Eric Armstead's still a stud. But Nick Bosa dictates what opposing offensive lines are doing on every single snap, right? right? I mean, he is a guy you have to account for every single play. And the way they've constructed their roster really is the front seven gets a gets a pass rush. And, and the secondary, yeah, they spent a little bit of money on Trevarius Ward. Uh, they're looking to pay Talanoa Hufanga the safety in the near future. But, but it is a secondary that without that much pressure, you probably can't pick your spots and throw against them. So, yeah. And, and then going back to the draft pick, you know, trade up and all that for Trey Lance, I think we get hung up in sometimes just getting good players with first-round picks. What it also does is if you do hit on those picks, you have really good players that are making way less money than they're actually worth, all this surplus value, when you don't have that because you haven't had picks recently and then you start paying Nick Bosa $30-plus million a year, yeah, the, you know, the margin for error gets a little slimmer. Brad Spielberger of PFF, that's Pro Football Focus, with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I. 
people have asked me before some surprises and, and given the disaster that it was in Denver a year ago I guess there's no way to go but up here but could we see a surprise in terms of a turnaround and a quarterback and a rejuvenation by bringing in a well-accomplished head coach here I think so I am a huge believer in Sean Payton even down to the bitter end he's winning games with you know, Taysom Hill and Ian Book and, and, you know, insert quarterback name here that's no longer on a roster, uh, and he's finding ways to win these games, even in his last season in New Orleans. I really think he is that much of a difference maker. They also go out, they add a bunch of offensive line talent, um, you know, get Mike McGlinchey to play right tackle, which was an issue for them all of last year. And I really think what he's going to do, he doesn't care about Russell Wilson's ego or what Russell Wilson wants to do. They're going to run the football a ton, and they're going to weaponize play action and have Russell Wilson only throw, you know, 25 times a game, not 40, and, and get back to what Russell Wilson was doing when the Seahawks were winning Super Bowls. So their defense was was elite, like 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 end of sentence elite last year. Maybe it won't be as good, but but if they get to that formula and Russ is efficient, but not as you know, you know, as consistently throwing the football, I think you could see a bounce back. I don't know about contender or anything like that, but, but you know, maybe a 500 fringe playoff type team. All right. How do you think the Packers are going to look in their, their first game without one Aaron Rodgers at the helm any longer? It does help that, you know, they're playing, I think, one of the, the least talented defenses in the NFL, particularly up front. I, I'm not really sure how the Bears are going to generate much of a pass rush. You have a healthy David Bakhtiari back at left tackle, a healthy Elkin Jenkins back in the fold at, at guard. So I think Jordan Love is going to have time. You know, the question for me is all these young receivers. I mean, two sophomores and Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs on the outside. His starting slot receiver, Jaden Reed's a rookie. His starting tight end, Luke Musgrave's a rookie. So can there be some early, you know, mistakes early on and, and rookie mishaps? I think it's probably going to be part of the equation. But, you know, fortunately, they are not playing against a very good defense. I think we might see a, a different Packers-Bears game than normal. I think it might be pretty high scoring, uh, you know, where we're used to kind of a lopsided, you know, one-sided affair uh, with Green Bay, you know, usually dominating that series. All right. So the Dolphins didn't get what they wanted. That was Jonathan Taylor because the Colts really didn't want to trade him. Let's just face it. They put that price tag up there because they knew nobody was going to reach that point of, of which they would uh, deem acceptable. So whatever. Uh, do you think, A, the Dolphins revisit this at some point, and then B, with a Jonathan Taylor, what would that Dolphins team look like? Where would they go? Would that, that take them up a couple of notches, in your opinion, in the AFC, as far as the, the contention possibilities with teams are concerned? I think the only way Miami, you know, rehas those conversations is it's a different structure at this point. So where in the past, I think they probably were willing to, hey, we're going to trade for you. We're going to sign you to a top of market extension. And maybe now let's say Taylor says, look, I'm not playing low down for the Colts. I don't care. I'll take the fines. I'll take whatever. And Indianapolis just wants to, you know, move on and get whatever value they can. Maybe Miami tries to sell him on, we'll trade for you for lesser compensation. We're not going to extend you, but you can come in, you can play on a very, very good offense, and then you can get paid in the offseason. We'll recoup a compensatory pick. That's kind of how we'll make up the value, um, and you'll go elsewhere. If he does come in, I think it's just underappreciated how much space that Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle will create for him. Is it a good offensive line? Not really, but – when you have the two, you know, two of the five fastest players in the NFL, guys, the defenses just have to cheat 
backwards for and account for, I mean, he could run wild in that offense. Hey, Brad, before I let you go, the last time out we saw Buffalo, they were disappointing the hell out of everybody, especially their fan base in this case. They get up from that. Is that still a team? Certainly to be reckoned with, there's no doubt about that. But how do you view Buffalo to begin this season? Yeah, they're interesting. I mean, I think without Von Miller, you know, for the early going, last year we had them as a top three team in pressure rate without blitzing when Von Miller was on the field. You take Von Miller out of the equation, they were 23rd in pressure rate without blitzing. So he made a massive, massive difference for them. I do like some young players they have in Gregory Rousseau and a couple others. But I think early on they're going to have to score a lot of points because their defense is good, it has some talent, but it's not great. Um, and then on offense, their offensive line, I think you can poke some holes and there's some question marks there as well. So still very good, one of the best teams in the AFC. But, you know, kind of like we, you, know, you poke holes in Kansas City or whoever, yeah. they, they have their warts as well. Well, they're running back by committee basically as well. I mean, I know James Cook could get a large part of it, but I mean, let's face it, if somebody were, were looking for a, a bit of a reboot, I'm, I'm assuming that they would take it right there. Josh Allen's a guy that calls his own number all the time, but, but at some point that has to decline and he has to be able, if they want to run the football, to be able to run the football. Does James Cook and this group do that for you? You know, not really. On early downs, you're trying to run the ball. I like James Cook, but that's not really his game. I mean, he's a smaller guy. He's a great pass catcher. He can run between the tackles, but he's not going to be a 25-touch type of player. That's just not really who he's ever been. Um, And the other guys in the fold are, you know, Latavius Murray and and those guys are obviously not long-term solutions. I agree with you. Josh Allen cannot sustain taking all these hits throughout the course of the season. Obviously, he did get hurt last year. Granted, that was on a drop back, not on a run. But I don't think they want to see him you know, near the goal line and, and diving over piles and all these things. They might have to address that at some point. I don't know about Jonathan Taylor level, um, but I think over the course of Allen's career, you're going to want to have a good runner on early downs to take some of the load off of Josh Allen. All right. What are you writing about, Brad? What can people read and, and get your intelligence and be better prepared for the start of this NFL season? Yeah, so I got an article coming out tomorrow or maybe Thursday, depending on when Vegas gets their act together, uh, looking at some of my favorite prop bets for week one um, and also our you know, favorite spreads and all those things. So it's gambling time for us over at PFF or, or for me in particular, uh, and that's what I'm putting out this week. Brad, I appreciate it as always, man. We'll do it again next week. Sounds great. Thank you. Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus here via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Highline. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Greg Rakestraw joins us. Pearl Jam is a hole in my resume. Have you seen him? I saw them 51 weeks ago at Bourbon and Beyond, and I'm going back Sunday night, John. Son of a... You already got your tickets? Why am I the last oh, one to jump tickets. on this we thing? Got them the, we got them the day that they uh, went on sale, and I think we have to give away one of our children to sit in the uh, in, in the pavilion, so Amy and I are slumming it in the lawn on Sunday night. <laughs> I'm just curious as to how quickly I can sign off at 7.20 and then make my way to Noblesville. And then get in there expeditiously, Correct. which will be a I'm challenge. Late, so that won't be a problem, so... Doesn't Valier live up there somewhere? Why can't you just broadcast live from Casey's house? I think he's. Uh, I think he's prefer to me, you know, to be actually at the stadium <laughs> since I have in-stadium responsibilities during the game, John. I'm going to park in J-Law's yard, I think, if I get a ticket and just walk over there. 
something like that. That's what I'm thinking send right me, there. Send me Jeffrey's address so I know exactly where to park. Thanks. Appreciate that. Hey, Greg, is there anywhere in the bylaws of college football, athletics in general, maybe even the Big Ten if you have to go that far, where you could merge uh, Purdue's offense with the IU defense and maybe have something nice going into the season? I think the last time we saw teams merge, John, was World War II. Okay. Uh, so anything shy of a world war, probably not, and I hope it doesn't get to that point. But your point is well made. Yes, sir. Yeah. It um, both – and what stood out – we'll start with Purdue for a moment, too. What stood out to me offensively, yeah, there are moments, certainly more times than not, they were fun to watch. They put up clearly enough points, didn't turn it over. Uh, but defensively, what really concerned me was the third down and long, the chunk plays that they gave up. I mean, just ridiculous amounts. I would say this. I, I thought that was a trap game for Purdue. In other words, Fresno is about as good of a team from outside of the Power Five as you're probably going to face. If this was a both a team and a staff that had been together for more than a handful of months, that's probably still a game that you win. And obviously Purdue did things offensively enough where they should have won that game. But Fresno's a really good team. It's why it's hard for teams like that to find teams to play them, even though we're now scheduling college football games like 15 years in advance uh, for some reason. We have no idea what the landscape of college athletics is going to look like a year and a half from now, let alone a decade and a half from now. But that was a game where can you be disappointed in Purdue and how it played out? Of course you can. You want to win the game. But given the fact there was such roster turnover and this staff is still trying to figure out their way in Purdue, I'm not overly surprised they lost a close from the Fresno State. Yeah, and it's funny. We'll get to IU in a second. Much like I don't know, certainly you can do better offensively if you're IU than what you did. I just don't know how – far up the ceiling goes with that and I would say the same thing about Purdue's defense especially in that secondary very young and experienced and I just don't know if that ceiling is going to be there in terms of getting it balanced to where it needs to be for this team to win especially considering that schedule they have up until a little after October the 31st and Halloween it's pretty tough let's face it you know it, it you know even though Purdue is in a better place from a football program standpoint than IU we still talk about, for each of these two teams, before we talk about what the skill sets those two teams possess, it's whom they play. How does the schedule break for those teams? And more often than not, in the era of Big Ten East and Big Ten West, we have talked about the schedule being softer for Purdue. Clearly, that is not the case this year. And that tends to go away now in a in an 18-team alignment, uh, more so than we've had in a 14-team alignment. But I, I think it's I think it's possible that we're talking about two non-bowl teams at the end of this season. Um, and, and I still, because of how Indiana played defensively against Ohio State, I know the offense looked bad, and I'm not trying to downplay that. But in most years, it'd be like, hey, listen. Indiana State was with, or I'm sorry, Indiana was in 20 of, of, of Ohio State, or Indiana held Ohio State to their fewest points they've held them in, in, in the last 30 years. I actually think there are some positives you taken for that. So I'm not trying to be, you know, Debbie Downer about both teams. Uh, the result was more expected for Indiana than Purdue, but I'm not overly surprised that both teams are 0 and 1. Um, for Purdue, it's just the question of, as a fan, I love the fact they're playing. Basically, a schedule that's nothing but power five teams the rest of the way. 
as as a as somebody that tries to analyze Purdue and, and and look at a new team and a new staff, I go, man, that's rough for your first year to play that schedule. That's not very user friendly. So Greg Gregstall with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pileline. We'll get to the Colts coming up in a minute. Through three weeks of the high school football season, what stands out to you over that three-week span so far, Craig? Man, Davis is really good. Um, Center Grove is good. They ran into maybe a, a national top 10, top 15 team in their opening game of the season. Since then, they've beaten two historically really good programs. They play another one coming up in Moeller. And I think the entirety of the Hoosier Crossroads Conference is good. Um, that league, top to bottom, is probably as good as it's ever been. So while I think Senator Grove and Ben Davis deserve to be talked about in terms of the top couple of slots, there are a multitude of HCC teams of HSE, Fishers, Brownsburg, Westfield, Franklin Central, that deserve to be in that conversation as well, kind of right behind those teams. So maybe from a depth standpoint, this is the best that we have seen 6A football. So Ben Davis gets IMG Academy coming up on Friday night. Is is that a place where you just do nothing but sports and, and don't go to class or anything like that? Kind of just half-assedly go to class? Uh, I would assume they have to have some level of class <laughs> to qualify for college would be my guess. Um, but that rules are maybe a, a little bit more lax yeah. than they would be without having a state federation. So is is, is, is half-assedly in the ballpark, or is it completely inaccurate where I need to strike it from the record? Maybe it's three-quarters of their backside. How about that? <laughs> gotcha, yes. But, maybe maybe yeah. a little more leeway for travel is given, given the national schedule in which they play. And because it's a sports slash, in this case, football factory, they are very good. They are tremendously good. Uh, and I've kind of gotten my hands on a on a first set of game notes, and it looks like five major Division One commitments. Nice. Quarterback heading to Liberty. Colorado, Oklahoma, frankly, there will be more. You know, they've had kids drafted basically in the first round after they got done with their college careers in each of the last four years. So, you know, you remember the the the, the origin of IMG, this is the old Nick Boletari Tennis Academy. Right. Where they go, hey, maybe we can do this for other sports and not just tennis. And, and this is what has kind of morphed out of it over the course of the last decade. So this is clearly for this age group one of the best collections of talent you could go face. I think Ben Davis can hang with him. I think this Ben Davis team is really good. Is Ben Davis as good as, say, their, that what would be their best team? You could argue is it the 91 National Championship team? Is it the 2017 team that was led by Reese Taylor? Really only one team claimed, came close to them all season long, and that was Warren Central in the sectional. I'm not sure this Ben Davis team is that good, but I do think they might be the best team in the state of Indiana, and I do think they will give an accounting of themselves on Friday night. It's uh, Greg Raystraw with us. Before I let you go, normally if there is a, a couple of words in front of the word committee, it's not a good thing. Because committees just in general aren't good things. Whether you're talking about your, your HOA, there's a committee I'm sure involved there, maybe a small one, but they're up everybody's rear end about everything. Can't put a barn there. I don't know about that basketball goal. Mow your yard. You need to weed eat, whatever. All right. Other committees, we know this, a search committee. Uh, most of the times, FUBAR. Uh, there are a lot of variations of, of committee. Quarterback by committee is at the top of the list of being bad. Where does running back by committee, where does that rank considering 
you have arguably one of the best running backs on the PUP right now. When you have to go running back by committee in this case, where might that rank in terms of committees? If the others are felonies, this is a misdemeanor. Um, more teams in the National Football League are going to running back by committee. Your point is, is well stated and well made. The best case scenario is that the committee is chaired and is, is entirely made up of Jonathan Taylor. Um, but in his absence, let's face it, I also think if Zach Moss was fully healthy, he'd be getting more touches than anybody else. But I think there's things you can do with Deion Jackson and Evan Hull out of the backfield. So I think it's I think they're going to have you know plays for all three healthy running backs, and whoever kind of is the hot hand may get more of the touches down the stretch of the game. It would not surprise me if the if the top rusher for Sunday's game is a guy that's wearing number five. He doesn't play running back at all in terms of yeah. Anthony Richardson. So uh, it's not good, but it's also not an immediate death sentence either. How about that? The um, the itty bitty. Blank committee is one I did not mention because I have way too much class to bring that up. Clearly, so now did, was, was there any of those attendees uh, there uh, <laughs> over the weekend at, at Mystic Waters? Uh, no, I think everybody was was past that committee. Yeah, okay, I think they were. Yeah, very well, very much. Give, past. A, give a shout out to the IBTC when you're doing the show <laughs> this coming Saturday from the studio. I'm telling you, committees and consultants are the worst, Greg. We know that to be true, don't we? I don't uh, want to hear. I don't I, want to hear from your committee, nor do I want to hear your consultation. I don't want to hear. I, it. I have had a lot better results from committees than I have consultants. Just oh put my it goodness! I don't know, man. <laughs> mix them, mix them all together. Hey, by the way, you mentioned Anthony Richardson too. I kind of have a number in mind too. What's the number you have in mind as far as rushing attempts? You think you'll have Sunday? Uh, let's go with nine. How about that? Mm. And uh, I base it off of this. Uh, if you look back at last year, Jalen Hurts played 15 games in Shane Steichen's offense, basically averaged 11 carries per game. I'm not sure they're wanting to expose Richardson all that much in his, in his first game. So let's set the over-under at nine. How about that? Yeah. So what do you think that the uh, committee will rank in terms of, of that of Anthony Richardson? Let's just say you know, over nine is what you're saying right here. What will the uh, running back by committee rank? Let's say 13 carries for the committee, but but also almost an equal number of pass catches. And so kind of a couple of numbers from doing the preseason games and having the depth charts and the stats in front of me. Deion Jackson in limited plays last year had 30 receptions. Not in the preseason, the regular season. Evan Hall had 55 catches at Northwestern last year. That led all running backs in the FBS level, in the bowl level. So don't be surprised. There's a lot of quick hitters, pass completions out of the backfield to guys like Jackson and Hull to help ease the load on Anthony Richardson. He said quick hitters and not one hitter in honor of the Pearl Jam show that he's going to attend coming up on Sunday at Ruoff Home Mortgage Music Center. Driving from downtown to Nobles. That's all I'm hoping for, John. <laughs> Good for you, man. You got in there and got those tickets. So look at me, man. I'm, I'm scrambling. In the final week to try to get there. Scrambling. We, we could obviously, there, there's a price, everything, John. We can negotiate and get you to that concert, man. We yeah, can I know we out. can. Yeah, I know. I've seen that. I've seen what negotiating tactics might be necessary for that. But yeah, it it is one popular show, no doubt. All right, Greg, you have Ben Davis and IMG Academy Friday night, right? That is correct. And again, I want to point out uh, that is not the game you'll see on Channel 23. Rob Brown and Jan Bozier will do a great job on Warren Central and Lawrence Central. That is the game of the week on Channel 23. 
uh, ISC and the folks from the MIC were very kind to allow Lance Scheib and I to go over to Flow Sports and give the game kind of a local feel from the Indianapolis perspective. So if you want to, if you're not going to come out to Ben Davis to the game, you got to go to Flow Sports to get that game. Channel 23 will have an equally good game between Warren Central and Lawrence Central coming up on Friday night. Now, would you have, um, what do you have it in Broad Ripple at your home television wise? How do you watch stuff? You have Spectrum. So what have I missed on ESPN the last five days? Oh Joe? yeah, you have missed ESPN stuff. See, I, I kind of wonder here because there'd be a lot of people who didn't get a chance to watch IU in Ohio State on Saturday, and that's one thing, but if you have DirecTV, DirecTV Stream, or, or UVerse or whatever, you're not going to get to watch the Colts on Sunday, and I, with all due respect, I love going on. It's going to be somebody's ass around here. <laughs> somebody's going to be mad. Nobody's going to be happy. With you. So I was able to watch, because Purdue was on, on, I ended up watching a lot of my phone on, on Big Ten Network. Right. Obviously, I had a chance to watch the game on CBS. It was very cool to see, like, the throwbacks of Brad Nestler and Gary Danielson from their ESPN days doing Big Ten games. That was really neatly done by the production crew for CBS. That was cool to see. Um, the only thing that would have been an ESPN product that I felt compelled to, like, dial up ESPN Plus and try to find a workaround to watch uh, was the Formula One race on Sunday morning. Uh, I caught myself yesterday. You didn't miss anything. Uh, that's, that's what I, I, I saw it. It was, it, and you're right. I didn't miss much. Yeah. Um, but I also I, I found myself watching Canadian League, Canadian Football <laughs> League action on CBS Sports <laughs> Network yesterday. They, they had a Labor Day with with it's all the U up in Canada. They had a Labor Day doubleheader. So I think the Tie Cats and the Rough Riders were winners of games that I saw yesterday. Uh, yeah, there it is. All right, man. I'll see if I can get up there to uh, Pearl Jam with you on Sunday, man. I know I'll see you before then. I appreciate you. Thanks, brother.